you're listening to episode seven of Firm Up, the fermented food podcast. This is the show where we get together weekly to discuss anything and everything fermented. How are you this week? I'm wonderful, and you? I'm good. Ready to talk some, about some fermentation? Yes, I am. And you? Yes, I am. So let's just jump right in today. We have a little bit of follow-up from last week regarding the fermentation labs and experimenting with fermentation, um, especially chefs experimenting with fermentation. Uh, this is from episode se- uh, six. And uh, I have a, a couple videos that are rather intriguing. And one of them is from uh, uh, Harvard. And it is has David Chang in it, who is the owner, head chef, kind of guy, I don't know, is a specific title for um, Momofuku, the restaurant we were talking about last time. And he talks about how he experimented with pork and aging pork for a a long period of time and different things. It's part of a lecture series that Harvard does, and they have another one from 2012, but this one is from the 2011 uh, version of that lecture series, and it's uh, titled Food Microbiology and Overlooked Frontier. Uh, It's, the again, the Harvard lecture from 2011. And where do you find it? It will be in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash seven. So that's uh, it's a link to it to to YouTube. If you just search food microbiology and overlooked frontier, you'll find it right away. Um, but it's an hour long uh, lecture, and it's it's I think it's great. Goes into like what at least back then they were really focusing on, and also in uh, something that they caught wildly that was similar to a spurgless, uh mold, but it was that they had just tested that week and the people that had tested it were the Rachel Dutton that I had spoke about last time as well. And she works in, uh, in her lab with, uh, also with, um, what's his Ben Wolf. They both work in lab at Harvard. And then the other video I have is of those two discussing different findings at a conference. Uh, they were at the science of artesian cheese conference in uh, August of last year. And that was just recently posted on YouTube as well. It's the microbial diversity and interactions. And that one, they're specifically speaking about cheese rinds. Um, And with that, again, being what her main focus was that got her into all this food microbiology. And that's still her main focus. And these other food-related things are kind of the side uh, projects that she helps out with. But again, if you're interested in looking, uh, digging in a little bit deeper to see what the different kind of science is behind these different things, and uh, and the thing that was, I haven't finished that one yet. But when it, some of the interesting things in that one were about how they thought, uh, or how when they're actually measuring the different microorganisms in the cheese rinds or in the cheese, or how they are affecting the cheese through aging process, some of the things that have been thought to be certain things are not actually what they were. Um, as in certain added added microorganisms to the beginning of a batch were thought to do certain things are from these findings so far looking like they are actually very minimal in the whole process of the aging of the cheese. And it's so looking at it just differently and, and really measuring these things on a much more laboratory scientific way. It's it's kind of cool. But you said you didn't finish it, so it wasn't as interesting as the first video? No, no, it's just it's another hour, hour and a half video, so I just haven't had the time to watch it in this last week. Um, Sounds interesting, though, that yeah. they're trying to really find out the, the specifics of what's causing the fermentation process or how it's changing or evolving. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, I mean, I think that Rachel Dutton and her team are specifically more interested in these microecosystems of bacteria. Cheese rinds happen to be the focus that they decided to go with and uh, to be able to study something that wasn't too complex but also wasn't too simple because cheese rinds kind of have a a range of of complexity. And so I think that that's her main focus, but it happens to benefit cheesemakers and uh, food fermenters in general as well with the information that's that's available. And so on the same note as this fermentation um, science that we were speaking about last time, I have been diving back into or just starting to dive back into a book or a few different textbooks on food microbiology 
uh, to get a deeper understanding of some of these these microorganisms and how they function, and also just how the whole process of fermentation happens on a uh, a much deeper level than what I understand now. And and I've gone through and looked at these kind of things before, but I'm I'm really kind of focused now. And so I a book that um, I started reading before and am refocusing on now is Food, Fermentation, and Microorganisms. It's uh, copyright 2005 by Charles uh, Bamforth. And the reason why I bring this book up is less about the science of of what the book talks about. It's it's mainly a book focused on beer. I think it's a professor at a, a university in California, if I remember correctly, who is mainly focused on beer and beer production. But just a very small portion of the book, I'm just grabbing out like a, a quote that stood out to me before. And then when I reread it, the introduction this time around, like about a year later looking at the book, it stood out to me again. And so I just figure we can talk about it. And it's a it's a it's regarding commercial production of fermented foods versus artisanal or small scale work. And so just to get the the topic going i'll just i'll just read the quote it's it's not very long but it's a it's a few sentences so nowadays there continues to be an interest in commercial products produced on the very small scale with some convinced that such products are superior to those generated by mass production for example boutique beers from the brew pub and breads baked in the street corner bakery more often than not for beer if not necessarily for bread this owes more to hype and passion rather than true superiority often the con- Converse is is true, but it is nonetheless a charming area. So what that gets me thinking about is this difference in 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 why is there a draw towards the small small scale, the artisanal, towards what I would say is the the story a lot of times as well. That seems to be very popular. Um, what draws people in, as well as is those the the small scale has more of a story to tell. Than a large producer, which is pretty much faceless, even if they have a mascot or otherwise. I mean, they're branding, but it's it's not the same kind of thing. So we're drawn, or I'm drawn to these kind of things for different reasons. Does it taste different because my interpretation of the story of these places? I I I actually kind of I guess not agree or disagree, but see, for me, it's not the story, but I I would. Ag- argue that some of the products made in a, on a small level are better quality just because I feel like some things uh, made on a larger scale cannot be made the same way. I mean, even kind of, um, we talked about lifeway kefir. It's not the same kind of kefir one would make on a small scale using actual kefir grains. It's It's not, that's not to say it's not good kefir but it's not the same quality and so for me i am drawn to small scale um like like you say a corner um bakery and and it's not because of the story although i sometimes they're interesting it's really it's just i do believe it's better food they don't necessarily have to use certain ingredients because the goal isn't for them to have a super long shelf life and it's just better quality. I don't necessarily think this for all products, but most food products, I, I would argue, are better on a small scale and um, not so much the local hype, although it benefits the community, but it, you know, if, if, if small scale means local because they can't produce enough to be outsourcing, um, you know, all throughout the United States or other places well yeah and i mean i think that really he's going arguing the other way is that because what is understood about science and and what uh, the technologies in production can make for superior products in on the large scale which i agree with to a certain extent that it is possible to get a better higher quality product even on a large large ish scale i don't know about how large it can really go but I wouldn't say that it's it's it is just about the story, or that it is just that I'm drawn to small scale uh, ventures. It's because, like, kind of sounds like what you're talking about. It's the attitude. It's the focus. With the large scale, major profits or profit seems to be the major driving force. Along with, if you're going to make it for a larger audience of people eating it. 
then you're you're going to have to choose or a, a company is going to have to choose what flavor profile to go with that's going to appease the masses. And so that's where even if the science and even if the product itself is technically superior without any defects. Which I don't understand. How so? How is it superior? I can understand some products, which I can't think off of right now, which one that would be specifically maybe pasta or something. But I, that's where I'm not understanding. How can it be superior quality? It's more consistent, but is that superior quality? Well, and well, and I think that's the thing: it's consistency and repeat, reproducibility. There might be more taint in this pasta that you're talking about, like a handcrafted, homemade pasta uh, that is fresh as opposed to dried. You're going to have potentially more inconsistencies, and you're definitely going to have something that's not going to have as long of a shelf life. Oh, and to me, that's quality. And so maybe the measurements are on a different scale, and that's where it just this this kind of bothered me every time I read it. It's like I really like this book so far and it's you know it's it's approachable uh not having a science background myself and um but that just popped out to me two different well and uh, one company that i have learned to somewhat appreciate more um this is just recent um speaking of large-scale companies or corporations is um tobasco sauce which i don't know the company that actually makes it i don't I'm not sure, but I was watching um, a Netflix that show called How Things Are Made, and one of the episodes featured how Tabasco is made, and I was extremely surprised to find out that they actually ferment their peppers for three years, and it's it somehow really made me respect them more, and I know it's really kind of cheesy to say, but just because they're fermenting their peppers for three years means that it's important to them for one it's it's it seems like they've really sticking to their the quality of the of the product and i mean and also more so they use vinegar after it's fermented for i don't remember how long maybe three weeks additional mixed in with peppers so they don't have to use um and that preserves the 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 shelf life of the product so they don't have to um, what's the term I'm looking for? Pasteurize, um, pa- pasteurize, or, or yeah, pasteurize a product. Um, so it's, it's so at least this is the traditional flavor that they talked about, and I'm not sure. I know they have other flavors, so there could be um, more more two other flavors. But at least the, just the, the the original Tabasco sauce is actually a relatively good um, good product. It's I mean, a traditional Louisiana style yeah, hot sauce. Yeah, and I was I was really surprised about the fermentation. I was like, this is really cool. They actually put them in wooden barrels and put a layer of salt on top of the barrels, like a really thick layer um, to, I don't remember, there's a, like a, it, it absorbs and, or it keeps the oxygen. I'm not sure what the process is, but it's just really cool. Um, so I like I mean, I was, I mean, like I always purchased Tabasco sauce, but, um, but this is just good now. Like, I don't know. It's just something changed about it. I'm like, oh, I'm really going to support them. Well, and I know that that's is, I don't know how common, uh, three years is for the different Tabasco sauce or the different Louisiana style hot sauces are, but the Southern style hot sauce in general is fermented, but, uh, at, but sometimes it's cooked in different things to 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 kill it. So well, yes. exactly, and I think I was expecting because it is such a large company to not have been doing it the the way it's been done. So yeah, I guess in order to keep the traditional taste, it, I don't think you'd get the same kind of taste if you're not doing it for three years. Now they probably are a large production. They understand the science of it as well, and the and then how to get repeatable results. Because I think in three years you don't want to have a huge batch in a wooden barrel to go bad. No, and I mean they do. They have um, all their peppers are hand picked, and they have this little. It's a. It's a. I guess it comes from France, but this little red stick. Um, and so hand pickers uh, like measure the color of the pepper next to the stick to make sure they're hand picking the best kind of uh, the pepper. That's... They use a French. St- colored stick to well it's, it comes the... from france it's this it's just a little stick that's painted this red shade was there anything particular as to why it comes from france as opposed it's, to i guess it's a, i think it's something that was done in france to measure the um to know when to pick something that, to measure the ripeness of the of the um 
like the vegetable. Oh, so or... this idea originates from yeah, France. It's yeah. not necessarily that it is made in, that they're no, no, importing no, just, sticks from it, France. No, oh, no, okay. it's just, it's a, it's the idea that came from. So they have hand pickers picking these peppers um, and it has to be just the right shade. And then, um, and then all of their batches are tested for um, quality control. So every barrel is tested by, it's really funny. They have people who take, have, um, have a couple of drips of sauce, that they drip on their tongue, taste it, approve it or not approve it, and then they take a, a cracker to clean their palate and then go on to the next. And then they use ice cream to to help with the the hot um, the the hotness in their mouth to cool it off. And in between tastings, yes. And I just found the very interesting. It's that'd be a great job to have. Taste, I guess maybe you'd get sick of it after a while, but to have a, a job where you go and taste hot sauce every day and then have crackers and ice cream in between see and, and this is where it, it because that's definitely large scale um what do you mean the oh, tastings or no well just everything i mean having quality control people and different things like that is well i, I, I would argue even small places have quality control there is and i think and that's where i'm i'm trying to think as to what um charles bamforth is is referring to here because there's definitely the um the small scale that is just like a mom and pop shop that has just done the same thing always and forever. And, and, and whereas if they start with good quality and, and a good product, then that can be great. Whereas other times it's kind of mediocre or, you know, uh, there's other small scale places that are pushing the bounds of what is possible in a, in a bakery, what's possible in beer and um, what is possible in any other kind of fermented foods and or at least what's not pasteurized or otherwise it, it's just there you know there's 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 different forms of small scale and different forms of large scale it sounds like the Tabasco company likes tradition so they're sticking with things and but they've incorporated it into a highly specialized production i'm sure well yeah there's a process and on the small scale we get the same thing it's just the same way as with uh, my experience in coffee and and just with the um you know the the that's where i kind of go back to the stories that i think for coffee stories really sell especially when you're talking about something that's coming from uh distant lands and there's farmers that these stories help get larger sums of money for their coffee i think story sells and helps a lot but it's it really comes down to quality too i mean you can't have a you can't make up a fancy story without having the quality and and the passion behind it as well but i think that that passion and that that quality really come out in some of these different stories for for coffee and and um going all the way through so many different hands that coffee goes through and uh these small scale producers these then the these small scale farmers with smaller plots of land as opposed to just dealing with these huge um, plots of, of, of land. So like you have the smaller scale farmers or the cooperatives, and then you, you have the uh, small scale roasters and then the small scale coffee shops. I think all those small scales do make a difference in the, the flavor of coffee. It's not just a quaint idea of what, um, you know, thinking that something tastes better because it's fancier because it, it, it costs more. It's, I I don't like I I just don't well, think that it's easy to classify either direction. I think for coffee though, you're the argument that I mean for coffee though, I can completely kind of see that point of view. I mean, I've had coffee from local small coffee shops that the coffee's terrible. Oh, there's a plenty of and so I don't small necessarily think shops. I don't necessarily think oh well this is great coffee because it's small shop and it's you know even if they roasted themselves there's a lot of local coffee well, exactly. not necessarily local here but a lot of small scale coffee shops that roast horrible coffee well, or at least if not horrible it's like no better than starbucks which is again in my mind horrible but. I, I agree well and so speaking of how large scale the only thing i can think of and i'm not sure if this is at all what he was referring to is corporations especially you know they have to please their shareholders and so there's so much more to it than just the public if anything they would be pushed to come up with something new something 
different. Whereas, you know, a, a corner shop that's producing who knows what doesn't actually have to have that pressure to to do something but then i would argue a lot of the foods that have come out that are creative are not desirable and and they're not necessarily like what's food. that yogurt one uh like that's i mean it's been out for years but uh what gogurt yeah that stuff is horrible i mean in my opinion it has it's not even yogurt i mean honestly that stuff is not yogurt but and who needs portable yogurt I so mean... so maybe that's what he's referring to that they are more innovative, but I don't necessarily say in a positive way. Um, just because I, I rarely see a large company that's very well known produce good quality food. I mean, that's just, it's the truth, really. Well, the good, again, these are tough uh, words to use. Quality can mean many different things. A flavor profile, like, I just think it's so much of it comes down to just really, again... Well, quality meaning not just stays, but how how good is that food? I mean, you oh, know... like the ingredients that are put yeah, into it and different exactly. things of that nature. Well, and, and the larger scale of product, the thing from? is, you have to source um, larger amounts of, going back to the coffee thing, Starbucks is, um, I'd argue, not using the highest quality coffee because they really can't they're so large they go through so much coffee well sure they can source well, they things wouldn't, they wouldn't be consistent well they 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 burn it i'd say just because they can get that consistency it's it's going to taste burnt no matter where you are in the world it's all going to taste that's, burnt that's and that's what's so interesting about starbucks or any larger coffee shop um is that coffee is one of those things that really i think it's it is difficult to keep consistent and so to try and Super make it a chain where you have everything consistent, that's just asking for not a, not a good product or, you know, a, a, in my, I mean, Starbucks for me, well, honestly, a consistently mediocre product is what like, not even on I'm not a coffee geek as, or I'm not that knowledgeable about coffee, but Starbucks, I honestly cannot drink it to me. I, I would argue it's a worse flavor than a Folgers coffee. I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. Oh, I, I honestly, when it comes to their coffee, I cannot drink that stuff. It's yeah, just, it's, all I taste is really burnt coffee. At least Folgers has like a bland non. You're disgusting. Coffee flavor. Well, I'm just saying if I'm comparing the two, I, that's an honest, um, an honest, uh, opinion. Yeah. I mean, you, everyone's going to have their own different opinion. And, and going back to Folgers, I think they had a commercial of uh, a few years back that was uh, of professional tasters agree that Folgers uh, tastes the the same from uh, fresh or 60 days later or something along those lines of Which... their like new freshness cap or whatnot. Yes, it's going to taste the same stale, mediocre coffee that it was at the beginning as it is 60 days later. I mean, that's... there's. Do you think that they just let it sit for a while in their warehouse until it goes to that point so that it just doesn't really change? Well, I think they have to because, like many ferments, there's off-gassing of CO2 and uh, Folgers cans do not have the same thing that other coffee bags have that have the, the one-way valve that allow the CO2 out. Folgers come in cans, so they have to let it stale. Um, because uh, what is it again? It's been a few years since I've rattled it off, but you know, uh, green coffee before it's roasted um, starts to well, especially like after a year, it's not as it's aged, it's it's staled of sorts, doesn't really stale, but uh, but green coffee have about a year, a window of a year that it needs to be roasted in. For roasted coffee, you have a window of about two weeks to consume it. To to yes to consume it to use up roasted coffee once it's ground you have minutes. Well, that's but that's also uh, yes I agree with you. But that's if you're really going for the highest highest quality, quality. And so freshness and, yes and so Folgers is ground so they're already like totally staling it and releasing all the the gas. I don't know if Folgers makes full bean coffee, but whole bean. But yeah, I I, I think that that. With all of those challenges that come with coffee, and I know such a small portion of coffee, the life of coffee is fermented, but it still slightly fits into this this um, larger topic. And I think that the specificity that can be placed by these smaller companies, and now there's still larger companies like Intelligentsia in, in uh, Illinois and in California that um, 
was was real big years ago into direct trade, dealing directly with farmers. Again, back to that whole story thing. But they were larger. They got large enough to be able to do those things. And, and they would be large scale in many ways, but they started out small scale and they kept that same kind of small scale mentality and uh, desire for quality and also recognizing the seasonality of coffee and that coffee is not going to be consistent all year well, round. And I, isn't it that their bags or somewhere it says that not every batch is going to be the same as... Well, yes, even their their flagship uh, like black cat espresso blend changes over time. They always keep the same kind of concept to it, but it changes over time because they're sourcing their beans from different places throughout the year. And even from year to year at different time, at the same time in the season, it's going to taste different because that's how food is. If we're talking about like consistency and ability to just keep things exactly the same from year to year to year and on the shelf for 60 plus days, then yes, larger companies are great at being able to do that. But if we want to talk about real food, real fermented foods that aren't pasteurized, that are um, have a limited shelf life in the sense of glass could burst or, um, you know, different things like that. I mean, it's different than like ultra pasteurized everything. That's There are some companies that still do that. I mean, isn't the kimchi that you purchased, didn't you say if it's on sale, usually it means it's about the the can is going to explode. Yeah, and I don't know how large of a scale of business that is, but... Also kind of like Nancy's kefir. um, I mean, I mentioned one of our podcasts, it was from, it's from Oregon. I don't know how large they are, but I think their kefir is very good and um, it's um, something I would definitely continue purchasing, but it's not at all for the story. Or yeah, but because... did you look up if, if how they're producing their kefir? Are they really a large scale thing or a small scale thing? I don't know, but I, I mean, I can't imagine that. I don't know how large they are, but I mean, they are in Oregon, and we are getting kefir in Wisconsin from them. So I'm not. I would just assume they're a little bit larger than. Yeah, but... just not as large as as Lifeway. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't see Nancy's kefir everywhere, but... Well, and speaking of kefir, we might as well just kind of shift gears and and today we thought we'd dive in a little bit deeper into kefir. We were talking about commercial kefir last time and, and kind of mentioned the, 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 the few things on kefir, but looking at it a little bit deeper... Um, is kind of kind of interesting um you know it's it's considered the the champagne of of milks mainly because of the yeast producing the the bubbly uhness to it and uh it tastes kind of fancy with its bubbles in it and so um and it's also great for people that are lactose intolerant which i am i'm very lactose intolerant but uh with aged cheeses and with kefir yogurts yogurts totally fine and again that's because a lot of the uh, lactose is digested by the lactic acid bacteria and there are different studies that have been done on lactose intolerance and kefir specifically also with yogurt and other things but that there's also some of the uh, bacteria that go into the intestine are uh, helping with that that digestion the enzymes needed to break down any remaining lactose because it does remove a lot of the lactose, but it doesn't completely remove it. So when there's full lactose, I am going to be in trouble. Um, when would kefir have... Oh, you're just referring to milk. Okay. Yeah. If it's milk, if it's full lactose, it's going... I'm going to have trouble. But anything that's fermented, so even if there's still a little bit of lactose in there, it I can deal with, deal with that and deal with it on a rather large scale. Isn't kefir even healthier for people that aren't lactose such as myself because it is more digestible isn't that just in general healthier healthier i don't know how to classify something healthier it's um it may be easier to digest for everyone because yes there's different things that are changing about it it's arguably healthier there's a lot of studies that have been done um uh, especially a lot of russian studies that have been done uh for for the health benefits of kefir and and even the the health benefits of of kefir that have been uh known to uh to those eastern european countries beforehand they are what kind of brought kefir supposedly into something that was popular and that was because back in the, the late 1800s i don't know how accurate all of this stuff is but it's are you talking about a story or well yeah of of how kefir came to be because 
well, before getting to that story of how it came to be popular in, in, in Russia is going back to the Caucasus Mountains, um, uh, which again, we had mentioned at a previous time uh, regarding Matsoni yogurt, I think was another one, uh, the Caspian Sea yogurt. But the Caucasus Mount- Mountains region is supposedly where this originated. Uh, kefir, the kefir grains that make the kefir um, that were thought to be about 2,000 years old. And the legend goes that Muhammad gave the gift of kefir grains to the um, tribes in the Caucasus Mountains, uh, to these Orthodox Christians, and told them that it's the power of their tribe. Um, Then so don't share it with anyone. So it was very secret for hundreds or thousands of years where they would share that um, kefir, the drink itself with other people, but they wouldn't give kefir grains or, or share the recipe of how kefir was made. So there's Marco Polo had spoke of it in some of his journeys or wrote up, wrote about it in some of his journeys and other people had, had tried it. And, but the grains, the necessary part to being able to make kefir because it's unlike yogurt. You can't just make kefir from a previous batch of kefir that they're different, uh, they contain different microorganisms. The kefir grains contain different microorganisms than the the kefir drink itself. And so this was heavily guarded, passed down from generation to generation. Now, this is where it seems a little bit, I don't know how much this story is is completely true, but there was was a woman, this, this Irene, uh, I can't think of her last name off the top of my head and I can't can't find it in my, in my notes. But Irene was sent to go try and get kefir grains from a prince. One why? Of, why? Well, because there was a Russian Society for Health that was like had seen benefits that were supposedly coming from people that were drinking kefir, but it was hard to actually find grains of kefir to be able to reproduce kefir to then be able to study it. So they wanted to be able to study it. So they went to these two brothers that owned a company and then they, uh, the, they wanted them to commercially produce kefir. And so these, these brothers put up a scheme to uh, have Irene go seduce the prince and convince him to give them kefir grains so that they could start mass producing them. Which ties into our earlier talk about like commercial production versus the small scale kind of thing. I mean, it sounded like these these guys wanted to be pretty massive. Again, it was the early 1900s. Uh, I think this was back in 1908. So it was, I don't know how if it, how many things were like considered large scale versus small scale. How that all differentiated, but you know, we're talking about something that um, potentially helped get kefir to the masses, which large organizations and and commercial organization uh commercial companies can do so if even if the taste diminishes over time when you supply food to the masses the knowledge of that food gets spread to every people just like starbucks did to um for coffee i mean it definitely made uh higher higher quality coffee something that people are willing to pay for and educated them on that so even these large companies that over time get surpassed by these small boutique if you will places they at one time were the driving force that educated kind of like Lifeway Kiefer in the United States, most likely. But back then it was these two brothers that were, um, they sent Irene out there to the Caucasus Mountains to meet a prince. He supposedly fell in love with her or was infatuated with her or however that worked. Um, But he wasn't having the whole giving the grains away thing um, because that was something they did not do. So even though he 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 really liked Irene. He wouldn't give up the grains. So Irene went off to go do something else. She was seeing this wasn't going to work. I don't know if she was going back to Russia. But on her way from leaving the prince, she was kidnapped and brought back to the prince. Because I guess there was also a tradition for kidnapping people. Well, this uh, is because sorry, the... kidnapping brides-to-be. So Prince did want her, though. Still. Yes, he wanted her. He wanted her to marry. He's like, ha-ha, they... Uh, kidnapped you because that's what we do to show our love. Um, and so it was a, a forced arranged marriage that was going to happen. The brothers of the company that were had sent her in had had some of their agents get in there and get her back out. Again, 
none of this stuff is really like explained. I couldn't find it anywhere. Even on the, um, uh, there's a lot of lot of information on kefir on on the internet. A lot of it doesn't seem. Um, there's definitely there's a lot of studies that you can get, and it's it's great to find all those. And and I couldn't find anything about the story of Irene in textbooks, um, or on the the English version of Wikipedia didn't mention it anything. So I don't know how legit that story is, but it sounds kind of fun. Um, but on the Russian Wikipedia page, it is there um, when I translated into English. <laughs> but she was stuck, got out. And then um, the Russian law or czar or however that was somehow um, took the prince to court or I don't, I don't know how these governing bodies worked back then or now, um, but somehow they were able to force. They took him to court for kidnapping her. Yes. Took him to court for kidnapping, but I don't know how the Caucasus mountains fit into the whole governing body of different things, but they were, um, they were able to get it so that uh, uh, he was forced to award her with 10 pounds of kefir grains or roughly that. I mean, it, um, so a lot of kefir grains. So then mass production of kefir started. At least that's how the story goes. And supposedly in the 70s, wasn't she like awarded something by the Russian government as a as a thank you for? I saw that in one of the stories. Yeah, but I don't... I, I, that, that's the least legitimate story for today that we have is that i mean i i couldn't find anything yeah it's it's interesting i mean who doesn't want to be uh to hear about things like seduction of princes and and uh getting grains in 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 exchange for that although it just seems kind of messed up if 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 it seems like a a cross-cultural um well, I just think it's crazy that if that is true what lengths they have to go to get some kefir grains i know but and it's kinda... just like go and pretend like they want to learn about the culture and hang out with a family and then just i mean steal i mean that's basically what they they kind of stole by the sounds of the story in a in a backwards kind of way and i don't know i just i just don't know how i how i feel about it It sounds like the uh, the history of so many different things are tainted but you know it's just like oh wow well that's kind of but why not share the wealth? Well, I definitely agree with sharing kefir. And, and today is much different. There's people all over the world that are willing to share their kefir grains with other people. But that's and how I got my first batch of kefir grains. Was how? I found someone. I, there's a website. I don't recall the name. But um, people just post their information. And if they're willing to give away kefir grains. And I had emailed or contacted this one individual that also lived in Wisconsin. But two hours away and and she was willing to ship them to me and i just sent her a check for a postage um she didn't ask for any money for the kefir grains or anything and it's pretty cool yeah there's there's definitely uh we'll find out what that that was right and and post it in the show notes as well with the where that because there's a few different places like mailing groups and different yeah, things. yeah I'll look, I'll look it up i mean i have an email conversation from a while and this was probably a couple of years ago but yeah, and, and and that's how a lot of people will get them. You can get them commercially now as well. Um, you can just search kefir grains online, and the and the reason being is because kefir grains you cannot just make. Well, you c- could, isn't there a way that you said that they were able to reproduce them? Or yeah, well, the difference with the you can go into a, a health food store and get a um, a starter culture. This is going if you but you have to purchase. You can't yeah. just. Okay. We with with a starter culture versus having the grains because you need the grains because they they are different. I mean on a on a bacterial micro or microbial level because there's different microbes. We're not just talking bacteria here, which that is what makes yogurt is bacteria. That's what um, is in in a lot of fermented vegetables is just bacteria. Uh, kefir is a blend of lac- uh, lactic acid bacteria, acidic acid bacteria, and yeast. And so they create that symbiotic uh, colony of bacteria and yeast, similar to, again, as we had mentioned before, the the SCOBY in kombucha. The interesting thing, uh, looking at a little bit more on the numbers, is the microorganisms in kefir, the drink, not the grain, separating kefir versus grains. So the microorganisms in kefir, there's 80% uh, lactococci, uh, there's 10 to 15% yeasts, in five to ten percent lactobacilli. So then those numbers kind of flip a little bit and change 
when you look at the actual grains. Because whereas there was only 5 to 10% lactobacilli in the kefir, in the grains, there are 65 to 80% of the lactobacilli. So the majority is lactobacilli. Yeast stay the same at 10, 15%, but then there's 5 to 25% lactococci, um, which makes it so that, because again, there's that acidic acid and the lactic acid bacteria. Um, and there's the lactic acid, acidic acid, and the yeast flavors. The yeast stay about the same, but that's why you have to have the kefir grains to make new kefir because the two things are not the same thing. And starter cultures, on the other hand, you can buy in a powdered form generally at health food stores or I don't know how prevalent those are anymore. Definitely online you can find uh, starter cultures as, as well for kefir. But starter cultures are different than kefir grains because what those are is back to the whole commercial yogurt versus heirloom yogurt thing with heirloom yogurts being generational. They've been passed down from family to family. The same with kefir grains being passed down and down generation to generation. Starter cultures for both milk or for both yogurt and kefir are both isolated bacteria and in the case of kefir, isolated yeast that are put together to recreate a consistent flavor which is different than uh, different than than kefir made with kefir grains they don't taste quite the same so most of the commercial yogurts or i'm sorry commercial kefir out there is made with starter cultures especially once you get to the really large scale i am assuming looking into it more that lifeway is doing it that way they use a starter culture so they're using specific bacteria and yeast in a blend and they just put that starter culture in there it's like a direct set uh, starter culture and that's how they're fermenting the kefir and getting that flavor it's not as bubbly they specifically make it less bubbly as well so that it's not as likely to explode which going back to uh, again Nancy's kefir that being the two that I think either of us have really compared that one does get really bubbly and does get to the point of exploding and going on sale before it explodes whereas lifelike kefir can be on the shelf for longer most likely because they're using this method because the majority of, um, and the same with uh, the Danon brand over in, in Croatia, they're using the, the the method that's not traditional. And it's, the other way that commercial places can do it though is with the commercial, They I'm sorry, they use the kefir grains, but they mix it in to the milk let it ferment for about 12 hours, then re- strain out the grains, then put an, like twice as much milk, fresh milk back into it and let that ferment for another 24 hours or so. It's another way to create a little bit more consistency and, uh, and do larger batches at the same time. You've made kefir before though, right? Yeah. Yes, I have. And so... How do you make it? Um, well, I mean, it's pretty simple. Just put kefir grains in a mason jar and pour milk and let it sit. Um, cannot recall for how long I did it. I mean, it really depends on the flavor one wants. If they want it really bubbly, more alcoholic or less alcoholic, but let it sit for a night or two. Um, I mean, really, it's up to you how long you want it to sit, but that also really depends on kind of milk that you know, a person's using, you know, whole milk versus 2% milk that also changes the flavor a little bit. I've only really done it with whole milk and, and then you strain it out and it, it just drink it and, um, and put some milk in the kefir grains. So it has some food. If you don't plan to make another batch right away, put it in the fridge. And then when you're, when you're ready, just pour milk into the kefir grains and let it sit again on the counter, not in the fridge. Um, and that's it. It's it's pretty simple. And ideally for the health of the kefir grains, not putting it in the refrigerator is going to help it a lot more. Yes, you can take breaks and not do it as often, but doing it consistently, batch after batch after batch, that's how you get the kefir grains to grow. And that's why there are those organizations or different 
online communities that will pass kefir grains around is because it's just a byproduct of making kefir. You're going to get more kefir grains the same way as you get more um, mothers, uh, you, uh, kombucha, kombucha scobies. You, you, that keeps propagating. It, it With kombucha, I'd say it's even a little bit stronger, that that reproduction of that the baby scoby being um, growing that thin film, and then you can split it off almost, I think, every time, right? Yeah. I mean, um, but it's not quite that way with grains. It's a little bit more than, than, than just one time. But you really only need about a tablespoon to two tablespoons of kefir grains per quart. Um, and what it comes down to with figuring out how long to do it for is I guess the ideal time is about 24 hours, um, 18 to 24 hours. Lately, I've been going at 12 hours just because I think I have too many grains in my um, my mason jar. And so it's it's producing faster. And it definitely changes the flavor profile. I mean, it, the the faster it uh, ferments or the slower, it's going to bring out different qualities because I think it's the lactobacilli that start out the fermentation process, get it right for the yeast, and then uh, they go from there. But if you find that you're making kefir with kefir grains, if you make it with the starter culture, back to that starter culture real quick, if you make it with the starter culture, you can perpetuate it. And it will say that on the box. You'll say you can perpetuate, uh, you can continue using this for a, a period of time. Maybe that's a few batches. Same with commercial yogurt. You do it long enough with commercial starter as a direct set starter or commercial yogurt from the grocery store. You're going to eventually have to get, start with more starter. You can't just keep back slopping. You can't Why keep using. That? We went over it before in the yogurt one. Just, um, really? But it's because they're specific bacteria that have been chosen and isolated they're not the communities these with uh, and I'm not even going to go over like that's why I broke down the kefir into the three the three main things being the uh, lab bacteria the acidic acid bacteria and the yeast is because there are so many different microorganisms that have been measured when you get a starter culture for kefir you're getting a few isolated ones they're still using a number How of different ones kefir though for yogurt it makes sense because I feel like then it's just a certain kind of yogurt but would well, it's just a certain kind of kefir. There it? are different kinds of kefir out there as well. There's different bacteria and microorganisms and yeast in the different different bacteria. There's even um, candida so, mold in, in some grains. There's actually two different main versions of grains. I've never seen the other kind. And so if, if any, any of you listeners have this kind, I'd be really interested to know what the taste difference might be. There's the cauliflower kind, which is the normal. The If you, if you imagine... If you haven't seen kefir grains before, if you look at the uh, the top of a, a head of cauliflower, that's kind of what it kind of looks like. It's this clumpy little white to yellow um, mass, and it's the kefir grains are are actually a matrix of protein and polysaccharide, and so there's just these clumpy little things. I actually have um, kefir grain right now that's it's it's formed into a bigger ball. So I have like um, in my batch right now, I just have these two balls that are just. <laughs> fermenting there so that it's less clumpy so it really makes it really easy to strain because i don't have a bunch of little kefir grains but it's uh it's kind of interesting but then there's the other kind of kefir grain that i found in a, a textbook on dairy fermentation which is like almost kind of mushroomy looking like it's kind of wavy it's not clumpy and so it's kind of spirally and wavy and different geographical regions have different kinds of 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 kefir they're all still kefir and and again depending on someone's brewing practices and health and, and health wise of how they keep their kefir i'm sure it's going to be different slightly as well but you're still dealing with very very balanced ecosystems where they can last uh for years i mean generational i mean you can just pass them down i mean yes you could say in some ways that some of those kefir grains are going to die in the process eventually but then you are always continually making more so it's continual 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 over and over but is it impossible to make the starter culture be an non-going the starter culture is a powder it's like the direct sets yeah i'm saying is it not possible to recreate the same product that is in the actual kefir grain so you can keep 
using it? Or no, because the it... complexity is too great. They wouldn't be able to replicate okay. so it's not it in that sense. I just didn't know if it was something that the companies chose not to do versus it's not possible. Well, it's, it's chose in the sense of these are the ones that they can create ideal situation for what they're looking for of consistency for that reproducibility, which is more important in a commercial environment than the flavor profile or other. I mean, they, they of course, it still tastes good, but... I'd say that a lot of the commercial kefirs are very mellow. Yeah, they are. And um, and like Lifeway kefir doesn't have an alcohol content at all, so it's not using the yeast in the same sense. It doesn't get as bubbly, and it also doesn't get as uh, alcoholic in the same sense. So there's a um, there's difference between those direct set starter cultures because there is so much complexity in these things. Now it is possible to make it. You can. You can make kefir grains from scratch, but I haven't tried it. I'd like to try it at some point. And uh, it's, uh, I found it from a study, um, Motagi study. I don't know exactly uh, how to pronounce that name, but it was from a study of kefir in Iran. And it's, all you need is a goat hide bag. So, that could be, I think, made out of the stomach of a goat would probably be best. Um, but you take that and then um, wash it several times with clean water. You know, you, you get that all nice and cleaned out. And then um, this study was using pasteurized milk. I'm sure at one point they possibly weren't, but they might have been boiling it beforehand. So putting pasteurized milk into the intestinal uh, and the intestinal flora of, of sheep. So taking some sheep bacteria or sheep microorganisms and pasteurized milk putting those into a bag a, a a sheep hide bag and then shaking it um hourly for and then uh and then doing the same thing that you do with kefir pouring it out after 24 hours putting fresh milk in never washing in between and just shaking it every hour again uh this replicates what traditionally has been done they'd uh they'd hang um even after you have the grains they'd hang traditionally in the caucus mountains their their leather bags their 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 milk bags out in the sun during the day and then in the evening they'd bring it and hang it by the door and then they'd kick it anytime that anyone went in and out the door they'd kick it the idea i think behind that is whereas it's the opposite of with sauerkraut or different things like that you know you don't want to be shaking it up or doing different things um because you don't want to introduce more oxygen which is introduced when you shake things the dispersion of oxygen whatever's inside that jar is going to spread around whereas the the oxygen are um a part of the fermentation process for 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 kefir so so kicking it helps disperse that oxygen in there help the yeast and different things uh get what they get what they need to use but back to how to make the grains yourself. They would do this for about 12 weeks. They'd shake it every hour. If you ever tried every it yourself. Every hour for 12 weeks? Yeah, every hour they'd be shaking. They'd be shake, I mean, they're probably doing it with lab equipment. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I say if you ever try this yourself, make sure you kick it. I think that's just be more traditional. Kick kick it every... every but you, um, They'd have to, like, plan not to do anything for the next... 12 hours. Well, this is, again, this was a, a repeatable lab experiment, so it's a little different than, it doesn't sound like, I don't know how often people were leaving their houses back in the day, but I mean, it wasn't probably like they were leaving every hour But this all is the time. making kefir grains. They weren't making them. They already had them, I thought. Yeah, but I don't know how often they always made them versus this naturally. I, yeah, you're probably right. Okay. Yeah, you're right there. But at some point, it just naturally... What what happens over that 12-week period? Again, this was a lab experiment. You could probably get it to happen uh, accidentally otherwise. But over time, by emptying out milk and then refilling it with more milk every, every 24 hours or so, it eventually starts to form a polysaccharide film around the edges. And uh, it, it is just is like this uh, spongy form that formed around the, the inner sides of this, of this sheepskin leather bag and um then they just scraped it off and they were able to then propagate kefir with cow's milk it was uh something that you can try i find it funny that it all started from goats 
or goat parts, but well, then no, it's no, mainly no. used in by, with milk. No, I mean, you can, it, kefir can go in any kind of any kind of milk. No, I know that. I'm talking about the irony of that kefir grains can be recreated in, or was the sheep? Sorry, was it the sheep? Well, it was. Um, they use a goat hide bag and sheep flora. <laughs> that's just so interesting. And then use cow's milk. I understand you can use it with any milk, but. Yeah, any so kind of milk, and there's even been, you know, you can coconut milk. Yeah, or I've, soy I've milk, read quite of, a but... few different things, or even um, mixing like orange peels in it and um, different. I've never actually had done this, but it was new to me that, um, you know. You, oh, isn't there you, something with eggshells too, like to get calcium, like to build up the, to encourage more growth of the the grains if you want to propagate grains yeah i mean so it seems like there's i mean making kefir is very much it's a very flexible thing to do i mean it's kind of it's it's very um unique to one's preferences or i'm not saying that correctly but you can make kefir grains how it suits you you can ferment it for longer or less i mean that's kind of with any fermentation but it's so simple to do and you know you can keep tasting it after so many hours and if you like it stop fermenting it or if you because you like your kefir relatively i'd say alcoholic um no it's not alcoholic i mean it's bubbly, bubbly. It's, I mean, yes, there's, it's more there's... alcohol there's more alcohol in it than i mean obviously not enough or anything to even like get drunk off of not that kind of alcohol but there's just more alcohol in your kefir versus where if i make kefir i like it more in the blanders but not any not like the store bought kefir I, I still like some bubble and and a, a yeah that's just what makes it that's what makes it that champagne of milk that but, bubbliness is but the I, I think my favorite with kefir though is the blueberry recipe with adding blueberries and some agave or sugar and 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 kefir it's so good it's just it's a perfect dessert yes for a dessert you're you're back to liking your sweet well only because i i drink so much yogurt and it's already kind of like has that, mil- I mean, not milk taste, but dairy taste. So it's like kefir, it's different, definitely different, but it's yeah, still, but it's that. still in that kind of dairy, you know, it, dairy has that dairy taste. So adding blueberries, it makes it that much more unique and, and different. So I don't feel like I'm just consuming dairy products all day. It's like if I have yogurt and then some blueberry kefir, it's just, it's, it's different. Yeah, it's I, so good. I'm I, still, I still really like the the plain plain. One thing kefir I want to try so with kefir, which I haven't, is the the banana flavor. That doesn't sound. Very I know, good. but I I just thought of that today. I really want to try with bananas just to see. You wouldn't or, have to add sweetener either, because bananas are already sweet enough. That's true. Or even like apples or pears, just really experiment with it. Yeah, and so make some kefir smoothies or whatnot. And yeah, because blueberry is very common. So which and it is very delicious. So experiment with your kefir. If you're looking for places to find kefir, again, just remember you can get them online. We'll put a, a link to um, online where you can get those as well as we'll put the link to um, the blueberry a couple recipe. different places. Okay, we'll put the blueberry recipe in there as well, but we'll put a, a link to somewhere where you can, if you want to just um, join the, the online community of people trading kefir grains. Um, do that as well, but uh, especially if you don't have any. Uh, but if you know someone that has them, that's going to be the easiest way to easiest way to get them. And, and then that way you're also not ending up with dehydrated grains that uh, you'll usually get when you get store-bought grains. Grains, not starter cultures, but if you buy store-bought grains or online shop grains, um, they're, general, they're oftentimes dehydrated. Well, that's why shipment, I, I Which think... you have to rehydrate and get going, but that still works just fine. It, um, it does. But I mean, honestly, I think the best it is if you can find someone, even in your state, that's willing to ship it to you and you just send them a check after you get the key for grains for postage. I mean, that's what I did and it worked out well. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's just that trust, you know, the, the person that had sent it to me, I mean, I could have easily, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just nice that they're willing to ship out something. I mean, I think I paid $5 for postage, which still isn't very much because it came in like a, a mason jar and. And full of milk, the way she had it, she had it full of milk, so it can have enough. Yeah, your results may vary with how it ends up being with the, um, with doing it online. That's I guess would be the only plus side of getting it 
from a online retailer would be consistency. You just know you're going to get, you know, you're going to have someone, but I, I haven't heard anyone that's had bad luck sharing grains with someone else. Um, I mean, yeah, there's that whole trust of, is it safe, but not as much as it's safe. It's just, are you, you know, is, is it going to come in a timely fashion? Is it going to, uh, well, is yeah. it going to be, um, healthy grains? Um, because I think I did that at one point too, where, um, you know, they just, they were a little bit, a little bit yellower. Um, and I guess that's sometimes how they are. So uh, as long as it makes kefir and it makes kefir the taste good, then it's probably healthy. But you, kefir no grains can be also, even if they go somewhat bad, can be brought back to their, their healthy stage with, um, just a few f- fermenting sessions and feedings constantly is from what I understand. Yes, and that's ideally how you want to do it anyway. Feed your, feed your kefir grains on a regular basis. Try not to put it in the refrigerator if you have to. You can go ahead and do that. But uh, if you have any interesting recipes or uh, other anecdotes about um, kefir or if you've made your own kefir grains, putting them in a goat hide sack and kicking them regularly, please do share because I really want to try that at some point just for... Uh, just to say that I've made my own kefir grains from scratch Um, but you can find our links in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash seven you can find us on twitter at firmup and on facebook as well at facebook.com slash firmup hey Brandon I have a question yes are you fermenting anything new this week? I've been fermenting a lot of stuff. We'll we'll talk about the results next week Ooh, about uh, you just want to quickly tell us what you're salsas fermenting? and peppers and all kinds of things that are totally out of season, but just <laughs> had to ferment anyway. I just couldn't resist. Okay. See you next week. We didn't.